Hey, it's time for our July book club. July is Disability Pride Month, and we will be reading Breathe and Count Back from 10 by Natalia Sylvester to celebrate. This breathtakingly original story of a teenager who's always dreamed of a role in a local mermaid attraction is a perfect beach bag summer book club escape. This YA novel is compelling because Sylvester weaves her painful real-life history with hip dysplasia and the numerous surgeries she faced throughout her life into her young adult character. It imagines a world where her favorite Florida attraction has an opening for a mermaid spot, a role that she's dreamt about for many years. Natalia will join the author interview series airing on July 15th to discuss what it meant to write this character and how much this story overlapped with her own life. In addition, we discuss the complicated role of parenting a child with disabilities and how she views those decisions now as an adult. Readers will also receive a bonus POV Imagine playlist for this mermaid attraction show. Here's an excerpt from this month's discussion. Not only saying, oh, when we get representation, it's important, but it's also like what kind of books get amplified because oftentimes it's informed by an outer gaze. And so like in the case of books by disabled writers, a lot of us are like often will say like we don't want to be writing only about like here's a character who's disabled and wants desperately a cure or here's a character who's disabled and overcomes you know as yeah. to be like this inspirational story like how about we just write all the different aspects of our richness like you know vero at no time is trying like her goal in the book is not about like oh how do i you know live without my disability right and it's mm-hmm. it's it's her, it's her like how do i become a mermaid and fall and and how can i you know like be in the relationship with this cute new boy that just moved into my apartment building if you want to order a copy of this month's selection please support our partnered indie bookshop fables books you can visit the local shop in goshen to snag a copy or you can order it online patrons receive a 15 percent off coupon code on any book club book as part of our member benefits This discussion will happen on July 28th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. To RSVP, join the Mom Advice Book Club on Facebook and click the Events tab to RSVP. See you there. Hi, my name is Wendy Hurd, and I'm the author of Books for Adults and Teens. Hey, book gang, it's our first thriller discussion of the summer series. And what could be better than a discussion around Lady Con artists? From Elizabeth Holmes' rise and fall in Silicon Valley to our fake heiress, Anna, to the fictional con artist Queens in White Lotus Season 2, one thing that I know for sure is that Lady Con artists are having a moment in our fiction and nonfiction lives. What is it about these masters of deception that make them so intriguing? And why are con artists having a pop culture moment? If you're new here, welcome. I'm Amy Ellen Clark from momadvice.com, and I am the voice behind the Book Gang podcast. On this podcast, we celebrate under the radar books, backlist book selections, and debut novelists. I could not think of a better person to lead us through the world of Lady Cons than acclaimed author Wendy Hurd, who wrote one of my favorite thrillers of the summer, You Can Trust Me. In today's interview, Wendy breaks down how the work of magicians actually informed her best pickpocket sequences, the four-act screenwriting structure that helps her plot her books, and how her editor's eye helped build better suspense with shifting viewpoints. I may be a little bit obsessed with the art of a good con because I have an incredible 
bonus book list that you have to browse for the best fiction and nonfiction con artists and scam books to date. I have found one of the best backlist books to include. It is a 2019 selection that audiobook narrator Julia Whelan loved working on so much and felt like it did not get enough attention, so I added that to my list and absolutely loved it. I also am sharing some fun facts around classics, like did you know that The Talented Mr. Ripley is actually a five-book series? If you're still in the con artist mood and this book list does not do the trick for you, I also want to tell you about my latest obsession, which is the Scamanda podcast. It's an award-winning journalist telling the story of Amanda Riley, who in 2012, after being diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, started a blog to document her cancer journey. It turns out, though, she never had cancer, and the whole thing was a ploy to scam her community and supporters out of over $100,000 in cash donations. It's as captivating as an audiobook, especially with the ways that they seamlessly narrate the blog with actress narration. I just want to remind you, if you would miss this space if it was gone, think about becoming a subscriber. You will unlock our new 34-page July reading guide and fuzzy book show with Get Booked with Larry to have the best reading month ever. These funds allow us to fund things like sound, equipment, editing. I am so grateful to our patrons for all that they do to make this space possible. If you can't afford to commit monthly, I totally understand that. We also offer a Buy Me a Coffee page for just a one-time donation Honestly, the comments over there are better than the financial rewards. I love discovering what's ticked the boxes for you, whether it is this year's summer reading guide, my weekly happy list newsletter, if you're not a subscriber, you're missing out, or our show topics that have meant something to you. It all means so much to me. If you love this show, we would be grateful if you just told one friend gave us a like, left a review. If you include your bookstagram or book talk handle, we promise to give you a shout out on the show notes. Now let's meet this month's guest. Wendy Hurd is the author of suspense and thrillers for adults and teens, including We'll Never Tell, The Kill Club, She's Too Pretty to Burn, and Dead End Girls. Her latest adult novel is You Can Trust Me. Hurd has spent most of her adult life in Los Angeles, loves all things vintage, and has a collection of thrillers and adventure books from the 80s. We're going to unbox that one. Let's get chatting. All right, I'm going to start out with kind of a fun icebreaker that's not really related to our topic, but I saw that in your bio, you shared that you have a collection of thrillers and adventure books from the 80s. So I want to hear a little bit about your collection, <laughs> and I can tell you about my very random collection, which is I started collecting little game pieces from like mm. old games, like Monopoly games. I don't keep the boards necessarily or like everything intact, but mm-hmm. I love like the little trinkets that you can find, especially the olden games because they have like little metal pieces. And so I have a jar going. And every time I go to Goodwill, I always check to see if there's anything cool inside of those board game boxes. Cool. So that is my weirdly random collection, but I am curious about your collection. Yeah. You know, I, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with paperbacks and we were, to be honest, like like pretty poor. And so my dad would give me like a dollar and he'd be like, I could walk to the used bookstore near his apartment in San Francisco. And I was allowed to just go through the five books for a dollar bin. You know, they used to have these like stacks Mm -hmm. and stacks and racks. And so I'd grab these old paperbacks 
And hence, I kind of developed a love for those vintage stuff that was a little bit before my time genre fiction. And so and as I got older, I got hooked on like Christopher Pike, especially. Yes. And so I have like probably that's probably the my favorite thing that I have is I have like probably 15 old Christopher Pike hardcovers that I've found along the way. And my favorite of those is this book called Remember Me, which is about it's told from the point of view of a ghost of a girl who gets murdered and she has to like solve her own murder as a ghost. It's really cool. Oh my gosh. I love this. I am getting flashbacks when you're talking about Christopher Pike because Mm -hmm. I was not really supposed to be browsing around in the young adult fiction uh, Mm -hmm. when I was young, but when I was probably around eight or nine, that's usually where I ended up over in that section. And R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike were like my ultimate favorite indulgences like for escape. So I love that that's a collection. And I feel like when you were saying that plot, I may have read that book. I I feel like I've read that book. I love, I kind of miss this thing that was very like, it's gone now pretty much, but it's that young adult short book. I mean, Mm -hmm. these books are probably, I would say 50,000 words or less. Like I think they're quite brief and they had a lot of creative freedom. Like you might have a book that was like sci-fi thriller. Then you'd have like a weird fantasy thriller. Then you'd have like a ghost thriller. And it just seemed like anything goes kind of vibe with those little commercial paperbacks that I think was pretty cool. Well, I think that is a really cool collection and it is definitely getting us in the mood. I <laughs> am not a big thriller reader like mm-hmm. as an adult, but your thriller was so Good. And I could not put it down. I think I had caught some con thriller vibes from White Lotus. So Mm -hmm. I settled in really well with your book. And I'd love for you to tell our readers and listeners just a little bit about what this book is all about. Yeah. So You Can Trust Me is about two women, Summer and Leo, who travel around in Summer's tricked out land cruiser. That's like their hashtag van life lifestyle. They've been doing it together for years. Summer has always lived that way, but it's new for Leo within the last five years to live that way. Um, Summer grew up nomadic, so she's never had a house with four walls. And the only skill she has to live is pickpocketing and running small cons, you know? And she and Leo have developed a sort of flow where Leo did not grow up pickpocketing, so she doesn't as good at that. But what she is good at is long cons with rich men. And so they have a really happy symbiosis between them. Leo runs her long cons on rich men. Some are pickpockets and they make a living. Except Leo's most recent con is with a billionaire. It's her first huge fish. She's really excited. It totally goes well. He invites her to his private island and then she never comes back. And Summer has to figure out what happened to her and use all of her skills that she's picked up along the way to get herself onto that island and try to figure out what happened to her best friend. What a pitch. Who would not want to read that? (laughs) You know, I have to say, you have a really special talent for writing grifting sequences because there is like so much magic in the way that you described that, those parts really did captivate me as a reader. And I'm wondering what all did you have to maybe (laughs) study or research to get that down in those scenes? I found it really interesting. So the summer scenes are kind of twofold. First of all, summer is really observational of people and human nature. And I did a lot of thinking about what it would be like to grow up as a child. She was always the only child surrounded by these adults. And she had to learn really young to intuit what the adults were thinking and doing and what they wanted to keep herself safe. And so 
I think that a lot of us can relate to that type of mindset of learning as a woman to keep yourself safe by your wits in situations that you might not otherwise be safe. And so I really wanted to just delve into the psychology behind what it would be like to live that way as a child. And so that's half of her grifting sequences are that mental part for her, where she has this one thing she always thinks, which is like control the attention. And she is really, really big on understanding what you can do to control people's attention. And so I did a lot of study on magicians, actually, <clears throat> how they do the like, look over here thing with their left hand, but they're doing something different with their right. That's kind of Summer's entire mental thing is she does a look over here and she uses anything in her catalog to do the look over here. It might be her cleavage. It might be something she's saying. It might be just something she says that she knows will make them think something and look that way. Mm -hmm. And then she'll do something different with her left hand. So I use that kind of magician mentality when I thought of her mentality behind these grifts. And then the other thing I did was a lot of research, not just on how to pick a pocket, but on the experience of people who have had that happen to them, because I wanted to understand both sides of it, because Summer understands both sides of it. And what I learned was that so much of what Summer does is rooted in empathy and rooted in truly being able to get in the skin of someone else and maintain a sort of awareness, not just of what's going on in herself and her body, but in what's going on in the body of the person she's targeting. And so it was really just kind of a deep dive into both the psychology and just the human experience of what it means to do that. And it was pretty deep once I really got into it. Yeah, the magician like idea, that makes sense because you are right. Like a lot of it is distraction, right? Yeah. And, you know, my husband and I did an anniversary trip to Italy and we were getting set up for mm -hmm. a scene, you know, as tourists mm -hmm. about a particular area that we were visiting and that there was some grifting happening there and mm -hmm. they were setting us up for like, definitely guard your belongings, have a mindset that, you know, this could happen because it happens yeah. a lot in this, in the, this particular area that we were going. And all I remember is my husband and I, we live in like a small town in Indiana. So we, mm -hmm. we don't have a lot of experience. And this was our first time out of the country doing anything really cool. And we got off of the tourist bus and I ran up to tap my husband on the shoulder. And he did this sequence where he just like turned around and he like threw up his hand and he was like ready to fight me because we oh were like God. on guard for <laughs> yeah. this like, you know, somebody's going to take your things and, and all of that. So that kind of like putting down your guard or like trusting someone and then having them do that sequence with you, that is interesting to think about that you had to also think about from their perspective as well. I think I wanted to write about it because I grew up in, in San Francisco and Los Angeles and I grew up in pretty like, you know, inner city environments and I had to develop a young awareness of my surroundings and it it lingers with me to this day. Like uh, I was getting, I'll like, as an example, I was getting my car fixed and I had to walk across the street and like down to Starbucks while they were fixing it. And I was in like North Hollywood, which is kind of where I grew up. And mm -hmm. North Hollywood is, is like, I don't know. It's just kind of unhinged sometimes. Like it's really random and weird sometimes. And I'm walking down the street and there's a guy walking toward me. He looks like a normal guy. And I just get a feeling about him. I'm like, I don't know. There's mm -hmm. something in this guy's eyes. I'm like, eh, you're probably being paranoid. I keep walking. And sure enough, he, as we pass by, everything seems fine. And then he immediately does this thing that he's, he does this thing where have you ever had someone 
well, maybe not, but like someone pretends like they're about to punch you in the face. Oh no. Like they like puff their shoulders up and they come at you like they're about to punch you in the face and then they stop and then they just kind of hold their fist there in front of your face. Like, and then they're like, ha ha ha, got you. Like that kind of thing. Have you ever had that happen like in high school or anything? He did that, but I was so already ready for it that I literally just like wove away from him and kept walking. Like it didn't work. I like had already, it was like I had played the thing out in my mind already. And I was just saying to myself, it's so funny how this is 20 years after I've lived in this area and I'm still always heightened situational awareness at all times, 100% of the time. I'm always ready. And I think that's part of why I wanted to write about summer because I, it's something that stays with you for your entire life if you grow up that way. And you know what I mean? You know, now that you say that, that makes sense. And it also is fully developed in your character too, that she has that on guard. She is ready to do that. And and her protective nature basically in this duet of, of what they're doing is what basically is sustaining them, protecting them, and also helping them along through these scenarios, especially this last time where we are getting a glimpse into what happens when things go south. Yeah. And then you have Leo who didn't grow up that way. And I kind of wanted to write about that. Like Leo wasn't born into this. She didn't grow up like this. She grew up very safe. And she started living this way when she was in her 20s. But she's not like Summer. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? She doesn't have that same protective awareness. She does sort of trust. She does sort of you know, go with the flow and trust that, you know, life is going to be interesting and it's all an adventure and she can be kind of self-destructive. And I did want to kind of contrast those two characters and how different they are and how different it feels to be them. Yeah. Well, you know, I am curious if Epstein's Island at any point (laughs) has played a part in your story because, you know, these women are being lured to an island. We have a billionaire. Yeah. Uh, What Mm. all did you want to either explore within that storyline? And was there any overlapping that you thought was important in your story? Yeah. So the island and the billionaire character are kind of an amalgamation of some different people like that in our, in our society. Like, you know, I got a lot of inspiration from like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and then Epstein's Island. I kind of wanted to combine some familiar figureheads into one, you know, person slash environment and just explore the types of things that can happen in that environment. So yeah, he's definitely inspired by that island and by some other people too. What about White Lotus? Were you a big fan of that? Did you get to see it? No, I actually hadn't. I still have not seen it. People have told me that this reminds them. And I think it's really interesting because like, for example, my first ever book that I published has synesthesia in it. Really random. It just came to my mind. I thought it would be interesting. At that same time, there were like five other books published that all talked about synesthesia no idea why. It wasn't in the news. It wasn't like in popular culture. It just was a coincidence. And I'm noticing that with this book and a couple other things too. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes with pop culture, you know, we're influenced by it, but in this case, you haven't even seen it. So I no, was curious. So because, funny. Yeah. I was, I was immersed in your book at the same time as watching, you know, White Lotus season two, where they are doing this grifting. And honestly, I think you'll really, really love it because yeah. it overlaps so much with your characters. And this book was probably written long before that 
came out or was even written, because I've been writing this book for a few years now, but the character of Summer goes back about six years. That I had I had her in a different story and then that didn't work out. So I pulled her out of that and I was like, I really want to write about this character though. So I've tried to put her into a few stories and finally I found the one that I felt like she belonged in. So yeah, it she totally predates all that. Do you have any idea why uh, like lady con artists are having a moment in pop culture know. right now? It's so funny and again, I don't think any of us are like influenced by each other because if you if you think about publishing, by the time things come out, they have been worked on for years usually. Like it usually takes 2 years for a book to come out from the time you write it. So, yeah, I think it's just one of those weird like social consciousness meme things. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was like totally into the web of con artist literature. So I was watching documentaries Mm -hmm. and then I would read the book and then I would tell my family about it over dinner. And my husband's like, wait, didn't you already tell us about this? I'm like, no, this is a different con artist book. You're not following. Like this is a totally different story. (laughs) It's so funny. But yeah, I think it's like something in the culture plants a seed in artists' mind and it germinates. And then they all explode with similar ideas at the same time. But it's very hard to go back and be like, what was that seed that got planted in us? We don't know. You know, it's so random. I love it. Well, I know that you are simultaneously doing a young adult and adult book at the same time, which I told you that we have never had anyone on (laughs) who was like so tightly like launching two projects at the same time. I'm wondering, how do you approach young adult versus your adult books? And do you have a completely different process with writing? So I have some overlap in my readership between the two, because a lot of people who read young adult are adults. So it's it's really hard. I think young adult literature is so adult focused in the way we market it, because teens don't have money for the most part, right? So it's yeah. like, oftentimes we're marketing to teens, but we end up marketing to the 20 somethings and 30 somethings reading young adult. And that, because those are the reviewers, those are the like book talkers, the bookstagrammers and the bloggers and people who are on Goodreads are often not teens. And so I do feel like a lot of the marketing for my young adult is ending up going to the adults who read it. But pretty often I'll get reached out to on social media by like an actual teen who's reading my books. And that just brings me so much joy because that's who I'm writing them for, you know? And so with this one, I've been trying to have a lot of mindfulness around like reaching out to teachers and like reaching out to school librarians. And like, you know, I'm really happy with my publisher, which is Little Brown, and they have a really big uh, school and librarians branch for young readers. And so that's also been really helpful because yeah, I think sometimes they can get tangled up a little bit. And I don't know, like we'll never tell the one that comes out tomorrow is very much for teens. You Can Trust Me is not a teen book. <laughs> like, <laughs> Not that I wouldn't have read it as a teenager, but that book is like not, it's not one that I would, you know, hand to a teenager unless I was sure that that was okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, that is very interesting. No one has really talked to that point that you are marketing it really not intended for an adult reader, but that's really the buyer. Right. Yeah, it's tough because, you know, that's why school libraries are so important. And that's obviously we're dealing with a lot of book banning and stuff right now. And my young adult books are queer. And so I worry about that a lot. And that's a whole conversation. But, you know, I think a lot of times that's how teens get access to books because they can't purchase them or they don't think that their parents would want them to purchase this book for whatever reason, or it would be a hard book for them to ask their parents to buy for them. And so, I don't know. I I guess I'm kind of waiting to see how that shakes out with this book. Yeah. 
That's a really good point. And uh, really, honestly, no one has talked about that before. But I know that we have had like Julie Murphy on and mm. she has an adult romance versus yeah. the young adult. And that was something that we talked about because, you know, this was a very spicy romance. So yeah. it, it was going into a different terrain altogether. And, you know, making that decision to still stay under the same name is also something yes. like, do I write under a pen name as a young adult writer? You know, that that is something that everyone kind of struggles with to know it if is. they have to market in two markets. And it's hard because you do have that Venn diagram of your readers who read both of your brands. And then I have I know I have readers who really just want me to, you know, I haven't done an adult book in a few years. They really want another adult book and they've been waiting. And then I have young adult readers who I know don't read my adult books. So I, I don't really know. It's kind of like I try to do all of my promo facing everybody and just put it out there and let people curate for themselves which one they're interested in. And I just try to make sure that I'm making it very clear which which one I'm talking about. This is my young adult book coming out. This is my adult book coming out. And I always try to use that phrasing so people can know. Yeah, that really makes sense. Well, I have been studying some of the work that you've done for like Writer's Digest and mm. different things that you have written on. And you write a lot about the writing process. And in some of your past work, you have described that you outline kind of like a screenwriter. Yeah. And you have worked in a four-act structure. So I'm curious if You Can Trust Me is approached in the same way. Did you do the four-act structure with this book or did you approach it in a different way this time? I definitely did the four-act structure with this book. And um this book was a hard one to plot for some reason. It was a real challenge for me. There were a few specific challenges with this book, which was like, anytime you're on an island, you have to decide how much you're going to pull off that island during that part of the book and show things that happened either before or show things that are happening somewhere else. And that added a whole other layer. So there's already two points of view but there's also that layer where you really can't just stay on the island for like 150 pages. It gets pretty repetitive um, unless you write the island in such a way that there's like really, really diverse scenery or really, really diverse happenings that you could do without it being too boring. But like using Lost as an example, you know, they pull you off the island and they show you what happened before quite often, right? And what's happening elsewhere. It's pretty common because if you just keep someone in the same, you know, it's like keeping someone in the same room for the whole book, it gets pretty repetitive. So that was a, a whole challenge because my A story is what's happening on the island, right? It's like the, you know, Leo meets Michael, Summer and Leo intro their backstory, you know, intro who they are. And then, you know, Leo goes to the island and then Summer goes to the island. And now we're on the island for almost the entire book. Mm -hmm. So I had to then write the B story is basically like, the stuff off of the island. And then it's also going back and forth between those two points of view, except Leo's timing is different. So like their timelines diverge. Did you notice that? Like, yes. So Leo's telling you like, here's what happened last weekend and summer's moving forward in time. So that was also kind of like trying to beat those out. So this was a pretty challenging uh, beat sheet. So without that four act structure, I would have been pretty lost. Yeah. Yeah. I love learning like how you map things out as writers, um, especially with thrillers. It's interesting to me that you have this kind of template that you use mm -hmm. in your process and that that kind of tells the story, helps you tell the story and in a way that you know what the formula is and the reader is still getting all those surprises. 
It's different from like, I will say it's not as formulaic as say like the romance formula, you know, where it's mm-hmm. like there's the and the act to be breakup and then the reconciliation, you know, it's like we have the romance beat sheet where it's pretty predictable. With thrillers is a little different with each story, like when you unmask the person, because sometimes you know who's going to be bad from the beginning. And it's not about who's the bad guy, but it's about what do they do or what did they do. And so each story has its own set of unique challenges because the reveal is always a little bit different. So that's always fun. It's like, yes, the beats are there and they should have a certain tone, but what those beats are is super different from book to book. Yeah. Have you ever struggled with creating different points of view or do you think that's just really important when you have a thriller that you're writing to have those different shifting viewpoints? No. I mean, I've written them with just one um, and I think that's awesome too. I don't think it has to be multiple. It can be really intimate and personal with just one point of view. So that that's great. I, I've done it straight through where I had one point of view and one timeline and I've done it where I had a kajillion points of view. And, you know, so it just depends on the story. I think what that story needs, like how that story is supposed to feel. I wanted with this book, the big challenge was it's only going to work if it really feels like Summer and Leo are two different people. Like it's not going to work if I can't make their voices sound different. And so that was the big, just really understanding each woman and how she thinks about the world and how she talks and how she uses language and how she feels, like her emotions, the kinds of emotions she has um, to make sure those two points of view felt like two different people. And they definitely did because I do think sometimes two female perspectives too. Perhaps it could get a little one note, especially since they are both doing something similar. I know they're approaching it in different ways, but they are doing something similar. But I feel like the voiciness of both of those characters really, really pulled through as well as the fact that you shaped compelling backstories like and those backstories really help add dimension to where they were speaking from yeah it was a real like up until the very last draft i was moving around those backstory chapters like trying to Mm -hmm. figure out where they fit best and where you needed a break from this narrative and where it was suspenseful to have a break from this narrative and my editor was amazing and she helped me kind of flesh out which flashbacks would be best to include and which were too lengthy. I had one flashback sequence that she had me break up into three. And it was such a smart idea. Like at one, it was like one 4,000 word sequence that she had me break into three scenes and intersperse in this really suspenseful sequence in the island. And I was just like, sometimes a good editor is just honestly a godsend. Like it's completely collaborative. So I would not have made such good calls on those flashbacks on my own. I definitely needed her help with that. Yeah, it is great to have like another eye at your projects and like have someone come from the outside perspective and be like, this got a little heavy here. Like it needs to be split up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or there's this one scene where there's someone who jumps off of something Mm -hmm. and then you don't know what happens next. And originally I had it like they jump off of something and then the next chapter you find out what happens next. And my editor was like, no, I think we need – some suspense there, like put a flashback scene in there so that they jump off and you're like, what happened? Stuff like that. Yeah. No, it really, really made for good timing. And (laughs) like I said, it was such a page turner. I couldn't put it down. Now I have gotten, but have not gotten to, we'll never tell, which is hitting store shelves tomorrow. We're recording recording the day before that launches, but it's launching in May. And I know that this is coming out later, but how did you end up 
dividing your writing time between these projects. And, you know, I know that we're talking about how promotion looks a little bit different Mm -hmm. as far as like who your, you know, target audience is. But did you have anything different as well that you had to approach with this project from the other one? Yeah. So with You Can Trust Me, I had waited a couple years in between writing adult books because I wanted to sort of, so my first two adult books that I published, I felt like they leaned young for the genre. I published them before I had a young adult brand. Once I started publishing young adult books, I wanted to age my adult brand up a little bit and I wanted to elevate it a little bit. Like I wanted it to read a little bit more upmarket. And what I mean by that is I wanted it to be more character driven. I wanted it to be a little bit more psychological, a little bit less dark, like maybe not bloody, but like suspenseful. So I wanted to write more like upmarket adult suspense, I guess, rather than younger adult thriller. And so I took a few years to write You Can Trust Me and I worked on it in between other projects. So I worked on it in between my other young adult books that I was drafting. So I was able to kind of like set it aside, write the draft of We'll Never Tell, then pick it back up, work on that. You know what I mean? So I kind Mm -hmm. of worked on it in between my various drafts of the young adult books I was working on over the space of a couple years. So it wasn't quite as difficult as it can be like when I did my first young adult book, I was also doing my second adult book. And so I would literally like write one for two months, turn it in, write the other one for two months, turn it in, write the other one for two months, turn it in, like back and forth, back and forth. It was a little bit less stressful than that because I didn't have a deadline for it. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm trying to get in your head space here, like how you're juggling all of these projects. That's amazing. Yeah, it can be pretty difficult. I mean, I was working full time also. So that was probably the, yeah. There was a little burnout that happened there, just slight. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about We'll Never Tell because you're here? And and since we overlap audiences, I would love for them to hear about that one. I'm really proud of We'll Never Tell. Um, That's one I feel like with both of these books, I feel like I accomplished something with formatting that I had never done before. And Mm -hmm. so it's funny that they're both coming out in the same month because they're both an example of a new thing I was trying So we'll never tell us about four teenagers who are living in like inner city Hollywood. They have a YouTube channel that they run anonymously where they break into various off-limit spots around Los Angeles and record it and do these really beautiful like urban exploration YouTube videos. And they have like a million subscribers. They're, you know, internet famous, but they're anonymous. And they decide that before they graduate high school, their final one is going to be the famous Silver Lake Murder Mansion, which has been left abandoned since 1972 after a grisly murder, which is styled after the famous L.A. Los Feliz Murder Mansion, which is kind of an Angelino's – we all know the Los Feliz Murder Mansion. It was left like intact, all the furniture in it for like 40 years. So, But when they break in, one of them ends up getting stabbed at the scene of the former crime and they get sucked into this mysterious old Hollywood situation. So yeah, so there's interstitials in this book where there's like newspaper articles from 1972 and like letters from 1970s. And it's kind of going, it has a little bit of like going back and forth between the old mystery and the current mystery. which I think is really fun. That sounds so good. I'm so excited because I actually have it on my Kindle right now and I can't wait to read it. So I'm really excited about it. Did you have any like YouTube people you were following that had like true crime channels that kind of helped you shape that plot too? Yeah. I mean, I have obviously read a ton about the Los Feliz murder mansion and I'm fascinated by those locations. We have also the Hotel Cecil here in LA, which is like, I have this fascination with the idea that there could be a deed that's done in a location that is so evil 
that it marks it or turns it into some sort of like a black hole for other dark deeds to happen. Mm. And because there are certain places on this earth that it seems like that happens, like the Hotel Cecil's the perfect example where over and over again, it seems to attract these dark, horrible happenings. Like for example, um, there's a, a famous serial killer who stayed at the Hotel Cecil not realizing. And then there's like just death after death after death, all unrelated, but they all seem to happen there. So I was really interested in that and that kind of research I did. And then I also just kind of looked at urban exploration, Tumblr accounts. And uh, I think those are really fascinating. And I think that's really fun to picture breaking into these like old burned down factories and like breaking into the zoo at night and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm always fascinated by even still images of places that yes. feel like they've been held in time. Exactly. Where you're like getting a little glimpse. So the whole concept of this, you know, is so intriguing to me. I'm so excited to read it. And um, I know that our readers are going to love it too. I hope so. You know, I think that one is very emotional, actually. It doesn't sound like it would be a very emotional book, but it is because the main character's mother it was the victim of a murder. And so she's having to make her way through the attack on her friend in the same way that her mother was killed in the same way that this actress was killed in 1972. And it all gets very, they're all tied together in this kind of mystical way, I guess. So are you going to get to take a little break after this? Or are you already on to your next project? Yeah. So we'll never tell. And you can trust me are both book one and two book deals. So I'm trying to work on the second book in both of those two book deals right now. There's no rest for the wicked. <laughs> Hopefully that burnout's behind you, right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, today we are going to be talking about the best con artist queens in literature. And I am so excited because I had Wendy bring a couple of her favorites and I'm bringing a couple of mine. So I'm going to give her a beat to rest and hydrate while I kick off our first book. I wanted to talk about The Lies I Tell by Julie Clark as my first one. This is published by Sourcebooks. It came out in June of 2022. So it is just squeaking past the qualifications for a backlist book today. This is a Robin Hood story with a feminist slant to it. A decade ago, Kat Roberts embarked on a promising career at the LA Times, joining a team investigating a rather notorious high school principal. Seeking to make her mark, Kat takes on a side investigation. Her plans take a disastrous turn, and she holds a woman named Meg responsible for igniting her interest in that fateful side story. So 15 years prior, Meg has suffered at the hands of Ron Ashton. He has left her homeless as a teenager, and Meg's mother had trusted this man. He's a successful real estate developer. He is supposed to be refinancing their cherished home, but he deceives them, falsifying documents and betraying their trust. Meg is grappling with this unresolved grief and sudden housing insecurity. Now, driven by her anger, Meg navigates the path to financial stability through a series of cons, and she is using her meticulous research as her secret weapon and targeting despicable men like the one that her family fell victim to. Kat is familiar with Meg's past and her current guise as a real estate agent, determined to seek retribution, and she concocts a plan to pose as a potential buyer and befriend Meg and manipulate her trust into revenge. But the question is, of course, for the reader, will she succeed? As the story starts to unfold, our alliances as readers start to shift 
and loyalties are tested. And the reason why I brought it today, basically, Wendy, I felt like with your characters, as we learn their backstories, we start to create sympathies or feel differently about them as their story develops. And I feel like this was another kind of blurry quest for like Mm -hmm. revenge and justice, but they also sympathize with the characters. And I absolutely loved it. It was not my absolute favorite from Julie Clark. I really liked The Last Flight, but this was really intriguing. And I thought it was a really smart narrative. She doesn't necessarily lean into unreliable narrators, which I think we have been, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of conditioned to see in our thrillers. So it keeps on an even keel with both the shifting points of view. So again, that one is called The Lies I Tell by Julie Clark. Cool. What did you have for us today, Wendy? Because I'm here talking about You Can Trust Me, I thought I'd bring The Arrangement, which is a, I want to say it's like a suspense, maybe not thriller by Robin Harding, which is about a sugar baby. So kind of in line with my Leo, you know, I thought it would be fun to talk about a book that centers a young woman who... It doesn't show like a seasoned sugar baby as the main character. What we get is someone who gets into this and, you know, it's a, it's a really understandable situation that she's in. She's like a struggling art student. She lives in New York. I mean, we all know how expensive it is and she's struggling to pay her bills when a friend of hers is like, Hey, you know, you can go online and find a sugar baby. I mean, sugar daddy, you know, like there's a lot of men in the city who will give you a monthly allowance. And it doesn't always require that you sleep with them. You know, sometimes they just want arm candy. You know, sometimes you do sleep with them. It just depends what you're interested in. But I found it really intriguing to enter that world where it was like a negotiation. Like you meet a gentleman, you get, you see if you're interested in each other. And if so, you negotiate the terms of your contract, you know, and you decide, you know, Will we sleep together? Will we will we date? They oftentimes they have like very structured, like we see each other two days a week, or I have all access to you. You know, if a gentleman would like all access to you, he tends to pay for your apartment and really set you up. Like oftentimes the girls have more than one sugar daddy. Like the way that she kind of describes this world is really fascinating. And to me, 110% understandable why a young woman might make the choice to enter this world, um, especially just given the housing crisis and the cost of living nowadays. I mean, no longer can you just wait tables and attend school and everything is fine, right? And so I just found it really interesting to think about how easy it would be to get involved in this as an arrangement. And I like the title because it is it is a very structured arrangement. And so of course, our main character it goes it goes wrong because if it all went well, it wouldn't be an, it wouldn't be a book. <laughs> um, but she meets a man. I think he's like in his fifties, so he's like thirty years older than her. He has a family. He's like a fancy attorney, and she thinks they actually like fall in love, and he is just the worst. And so it kind of turns into a story about how she can't let go of him, and she is maybe even stalking him a little bit, spying on his family, making friends with his daughter, who's like almost her same age. And the whole thing gets um, pretty, you know, pretty suspenseful when uh, when someone nearby gets murdered. Ooh, that sounds really good. I'm so glad you brought that one. Yeah, you bring up a good point. Again, it's playing on, you know, yes, it's not an ideal situation, but also that sometimes people are in difficult situations and they are doing the best that they can and they have to find unusual avenues to 
try yeah. to get by and survive in life. And that is definitely mm-hmm. a theme that we see in, in your book as well as, you know, the ones that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Well, the next one that I want to talk about is Pretty Things by Janelle Brown. And this one is backlist. It came out in 2020 by Random House. So this is a thriller that also has an alternating perspective of two interconnected women and how they are intertwined. So basically, Nina believed her prestigious liberal arts degree would pave the way for a really fulfilling career. But that dream is shattered, and she basically has resorted to grifting from affluent youngsters in L.A., again, kind of overlapping themes, aided by her cunning Irish partner named Lachlan. Now, her mother is who taught her how to do this. She is an accomplished con artist, and Nina has learned from the finest in the trade. But when her mom falls ill, Nina has to risk everything to basically help take care of her. And it puts her in a really perilous condition where she is going to embark on one of her most audacious and perilous schemes to date. Then we have Vanessa. She is a privileged young heiress. She is, of course, becoming Instagram famous. Her glamorous facade of jet-setting adventures, and she gets, you know, free goodies, and she is always, like, logging in from picturesque locations, is concealing a life that has been tainted by tragedy. Following a broken engagement, she is seeking solace within her family's sprawling mountain sanctuary and this mansion that holds a lot of dark secrets. So we are set on the icy shores of Lake Tahoe, and the past Vanessa and Lachlan are going to converge and intertwine in a tumultuous winter defined by ambition, longing, and the thirst for retribution. This is a really, really fun novel, and I have read a lot of Janelle Brown's books, but this is my favorite of all of her books. Uh, She really crafted some exceptional women who are also damaged and grappling with survival. And it's got a great game of deceit and destruction. And I noticed too in 2020, and I have not seen any updates because I know a lot happened in 2020 and sometimes our projects get pushed off, but they had announced that Amazon was working on adapting this into a series with Nicole Kidman set to star and produce. And they secured the rights to the series in a competitive bidding process. And it's going to be produced under Kidman's Blossom Films banner, which has a first look deal with Amazon. So Janelle is attached to Adapt It and will serve as an executive producer. And if you like con artist stories, I think this is one of the best ones that I've read. So I definitely encourage you to pick up Pretty Things for a really good escape. Do you know what's cool about the fact that you picked this one is that I'm pretty sure Janelle and I have the same editor. (laughs) Well, that is really cool. I did not know that, but yeah. I'm like, I was going through all of my con artist books and I just remember thinking that this was just such a smart one. Um, I know we're going to be talking about Stone Cold Fox too, which also has those kind of like smart women characters that really like you can grip onto their side stories mm-hmm. and like their motivation for what they do. And I just thought this was a really compelling one and I hope that more people will pick it up. Yeah, that's exciting. So yeah, so I wanted to mention Stone Cold Fox um, by Rachel Collar Croft. So the thing I found interesting about this book is it's about this woman who was raised by a mom who cons men, right? It's like, that's her thing. And she wants to get away from that lifestyle, but she wants to get away from it by marrying into a a very wealthy family. She wants to marry rich. So immediately I was intrigued by the idea that you would want to get away from a lifestyle, but 
you're still doing the same thing. You know what I mean? Like, but it's so ingrained in you that you don't know how to not be like this. So she really does kind of manipulate her way into finding a, a likely guy and she has to win over his like really wealthy family. So that's the premise of the book and all the things that can go wrong with that. Um, you know, it's like, it's it, the, the synopsis. I like this line, the synopsis a lot. The challenge isn't getting the ring, but rather the approval of Colin's family and everyone else in their tax bracket. <laughs> and I thought that was such a great line. So it's not just a con on this one man. It's a con on the entire his entire family and community and reinventing herself to be the right person externally that would belong in this place. And that's a con, babe. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, so I just found the whole setup for this really interesting. And the idea that the way we're raised continues to follow us, even when we think we're doing something else, even when we're our intentions are to leave it behind, we still find ourselves replaying these patterns that we learned our whole lives. And I found that that setup of it really interesting. Yeah, the writing is so razor sharp on that. And mm-hmm. I feel like her like humor, like it, it's dark humor, but I just mm-hmm. really appreciated that. And the other thing that I thought she did really well that has stood out in my mind since reading it is that sometimes when you have group scenes, stuff mm-hmm. gets lost, like oh, side yeah. characters, mm-hmm. but her group scenes were so compelling. Like every character was so fleshed out and the ways that they played off of each other, mm-hmm. it was just like so satisfying. It was such yeah. an ensemble kind of moment. And I don't think that always happens. A lot of times it's just focused on the main characters, mm-hmm. but she had some of the best ensemble scenes that I've seen. You're right about it. It's very difficult to write. And that, that just points to, I'm like, you should write a screenplay because like, if you can do oh, this- it is. It's going to be a screenplay. Is it? Yes. Yeah. And she's actually going to be adapting it because well, she is that a screenwriter. that is what I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah. See, that's what I'm saying. Like you can tell a screenwriter because mm-hmm. that's like one of those things where- a screenwriter tends to be better than a novelist at those ensemble scenes because on screen, you can do an ensemble scene, but on the page, it often tends to be more like the conflict between two or three people and everybody else is in the periphery. It takes a lot of skill. It is not easy. Yeah, no, it has always, um, when I think about that, I always think about the ensemble cast that Mm -hmm. she was able to do because it is such a rarity, but you're, you're right. right. It, it's yeah. probably because she has a screenwriter eye for mm-hmm. what would that look like when I put it on film? Like That's how right. are all these people going to play off of each other? Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the wedding scenes, the engagement party and stuff like that, those really, really stuck out mm-hmm. to me just because I enjoyed every element within yeah. that setting, that the yeah. way that she pulled you in. So totally. I absolutely loved it. I thought it was so good. I, I only had to like really stellar con artist summer books. It's yours and hers. So I really am glad that you had brought that one. Yay. Well, the last one that I want to end with is not necessarily just um, a con artist story. I know we're talking about backstories for people and how often we are motivated by something outside of us. And I picked this book up last night, so I am not really far into it, but I am so far into it that I know that this is probably going to be one of my favorites this year. Okay. And that is The Many Lives of Mama Love Harden. So this is a memoir and it comes out in August. And I feel like redemption stories are really important. And I wanted to end with that. This is basically about a woman who she is now a New York Times bestselling author. Her name is Lara Love Harden. And she takes readers on a really surprising, hopeful, and empowering kind of roller coaster ride. So basically, the story opens with 
the police showing up at a million-dollar house of a seemingly perfect cul-de-sac. Lyra is what I would call a typical soccer mom. So she is exactly what you would expect. She volunteers for PTA. She does all the things. Mm -hmm. But she has been battling a dark secret. She was prescribed opioids um, for some pain, and it starts to become a quick and slippery slope for her. And it slides into heroin. Now, that is not the case for everyone. I have Mm -hmm. chronic pain, and that doesn't always happen. So I don't want to villainize anyone who takes um, pain medications. But in in her case, she gets to a point of real desperation. She doesn't have any money. She can't get by. And she's trying to figure out how to keep her electricity on in this million-dollar home. She's trying to figure out how to heat it, um, how to pay her bills. And she's really resorted to conning her neighbors. She's taking their mail. She's starting credit cards. She's taking money from them. Basically, what ends up happening is she's convicted of 32 felonies and she becomes an inmate and learns that the jail is kind of a class system with its own power structure that she describes as somewhat between an adolescent sleepover party and Lord of the Flies. So she's trying to navigate the scene and she starts to realize that a lot of the things that she has learned in her real life uh, like being in PTA or like moving mm-hmm. up among the moms is also something that she is able to use to climb the social ladder in the jail system. And she basically becomes the shot caller of the jailhouse, like where <laughs> she is kind of moved up really quickly in rank. But the prison women give her the nickname of Mama Love. And what it starts out as is that she is kind of there having a lot of time to do something that she loved when she was young, which is reading. And she starts to realize how important it is and how people can use their stories for greater good. And through that, later, after she leaves the jail, she becomes a ghostwriter. And she finds herself crossing paths with really influential figures like Oprah, the Dalai Lama, the Archbishop, uh, Desmond Tutu. So through these stories, she becomes a catalyst for healing and offering solace to others who have been overlooked. And it's her time in prison that really gives her that empathy. And she begins to form these really important connections to these women and draws strength from that that allows her to explore you know, why did this happen to me and why do I get a redemptive story? So Mm -hmm. I am recommending this for fans of Orange is the New Black. And the title is that The Many Lives of Mama Love. And I think it's a great journey of self-forgiveness. And the fact that, you know, you may start out in those places, but that we all may have redemption possible and that uh, she's used her story for greater good and is now like a New York Times bestselling author sharing stories that help impact our world. That's great. That sounds amazing. And I'm just starting a rewatch of Orange is the New Black. So I loved that. So good. Yeah. Well, Wendy, as we're wrapping up, I just want to tell you that I absolutely thought this is one of the best thrillers of the summer. I know that I am newly acquainted to your work, but it makes me really happy when I find an author and they have written a few books because that gives me something to look forward to. And I'm excited (laughs) to go through like your young adult books. I'm excited about the new one that's coming out. And I'm really glad to hear how you are teaching other writers like through the process of what you've learned of how to write because it's really inspiring to me. I I feel like I have a book in me 
And I would love to get it out. And it's really nice to read tips from other writers and how you use your story to help other people flesh out their stories is really cool. And I'm wondering, like, what are you most proud of, whether it's in regards to this project, the the multiple projects you're launching right now, or um, just this time in general? Um, you know what? I would say I'm most proud of, I feel like I've I've managed to bring these characters to life. Like there's nothing better than when you have people tell you that they connected with a character and that character meant so much to you writing him or her or them. And you just felt like, thank goodness that I was able to get that out in such a way that that person was able to see what I was doing. It's such a relief and it's such a good feeling. These people feel almost real to me. And if I were to write someone and people were to not get what I was doing, it would feel like I had done them a disservice. So I don't know. I guess I just feel so proud that I've been able to write about so many interesting people and that I've been able to just connect with so many readers about that. I just feel lucky to be a part of the conversation. That was my dream my whole life, to just be a part of the conversation that we're having in literature. And I just feel lucky to be there. Well, we're lucky to have you here because uh, I know that a lot of readers are going to fall in love with this book. I hope that you'll get all of Wendy Hurd's books. And I hope that this conversation has inspired you to also catch some feelings for con artist ladies in your <laughs> literature. <laughs> Thank you so much, Wendy. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This has been so fun.